Hello everyone, this is Parks Miller. Welcome back to another Survivor Stories series of Podcast 99. We have a really incredible guest today, David Blaustein. David was featured in the Netflix documentary Trainwreck. He has some really great insights in that documentary, but he had so much more to say about the event of Woodstock 99, so we had to have him on. In fact, he said so much that we divided it into two different parts because they're both just so good. So the first part is going to be primarily about his background and what led him to Woodstock 99 and its time at Woodstock 99. And then the second part, which we'll release next week, is gonna be more about his thoughts on the aftermath, his experience with making the documentary and being a part of the documentary. Both of them are just equally insightful and really great. He's got such a good memory of his time at Woodstock. It's, I, I'm really happy with how this all turned out. So, uh, just a short background. Uh, David was 26 at the time. He was a, a fresh faced rookie reporter working for ABC news radio. This was kind of his first big assignment. So I think y'all are going to really enjoy this conversation I had with David. And before we get into it, while I have you, uh, please consider giving us five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. And also please consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com slash culture dumps. There is a lots of Woodstock 99 related content, lots of pictures, and there's a lot of uh, bonus content uh, from our new show, Culture Dumps. So let's get into it. David Blaustein, part one. All right. Hey, David, how's it going? Great, Parks. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you so much for joining us here at Podcast 99. Um, I want to just get into your story, your time at Woodstock 99. So take us back to 1999, or if you need to a little before, and how you got to Woodstock. Well, so I was a, a brand new reporter at a company called ABC News Radio. And when I say brand new, I had uh, started two months before Woodstock '99 happened, and uh, from the from pretty much the day I got hired, I was aware that I would be going there, which you know seemed pretty exciting to me because I, I liked a lot of the artists that were playing, and uh, that was a time in my life when I still really loved going to see live shows, which would uh, intimate that I may not like going now, which is kind of true. <laughs> I guess uh, don't don't judge me, but I have seen, been to so many live shows, and you know it was part of what I did for a living for a long time. So I'm not necessarily over enthusiastic about going to see live music, even though I know psychologically it is very good for you. <laughs> um, but you know, nonetheless, at the at the time, uh, it, it was a very exciting uh, idea to be going to this event as a reporter. I had never covered anything uh, on that scale. Uh, and, you know, actually, when I got hired, I hadn't really covered anything before because <laughs> I was pretty inexperienced and uh, probably a little in over my head before I got hired. I had been uh, a talk radio producer 
and you know really a news junkie and the man who hired me was a guy i used to walk to the subway station with uh, in new york all the time and uh, we were passionate about uh, new york mets and we were very passionate about music and the entertainment industry and he just wanted me to work for him at some point and this was his way of of getting me in the door to be the entertainment news producer and do a little bit of reporting uh you know later on i became a full-time entertainment correspondent and a movie critic but not really relevant to the story um so that's that's where i was at that point in my life and you know when i started that job i i was really in over my head um, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but you know, I'm, I'm dyslexic. A lot of people don't know it because I don't really talk about it, but the reason why it's relevant to this story is it was a struggle for me in my job, especially in 1999, we did our audio on, uh, on a, like a DAS computer system. Mm. So everything was numbers based and numbers like really screw me up. I always see everything in reverse. So it, you know, I, it required me staying at work probably two hours longer than I needed to, uh, every night. And, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily at that technically proficient, although I'm, I'm pretty good now. And so I, you know, was probably a little, a little worried about, uh, Woodstock 99 and what that would be like. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, driving to Rome, New York and taking an airplane um, and hanging out with uh, the guy I was going to hang out with was definitely an interesting and challenging proposition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went, I went up there uh, with a guy named Al Mancini. He, uh, he's a rock news producer and I didn't know him that well. And Al is extremely articulate. He worked at uh, the famous rock club CBGBs. He was the bartender there for, for three years. And he also had a law degree and was pretty well connected in the in the rock news world, knew all the publicists, you know, knew a lot of artists. And so I think I was probably a little intimidated by that as well. So I think on my way up there, I was feeling a, a little bit of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> and probably just a little nervous. And and you mentioned New York City. Is that where where did you grow up? Oh yeah, okay. That that's a good point. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. So I was from New York City. Okay. And just a, a little, I guess, a little more background. I grew up in a place called Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. Um, now I did leave New York City for a little while. I, I went to school in uh, in Buffalo. I went to a place called Buffalo State College, and uh, they have a really great radio program. But I started, I started. Uh, I started working professionally in radio while I was going to Buffalo State College. And I worked for two local radio stations there. I also did a college radio show as well, just a, a talk show, which was a lot of fun. Now, I have a question because you, yeah. you're you mentioning in 99 to Woodstock, you mentioned driving and a plane. Can you, yeah. can you clarify <laughs> that for me? Yeah, I believe we... I don't remember where we flew into... Um, but I think we took like a 45 minute plane ride to whatever airport or whatever city was closest to Rome. And I think it could have been Albany. I think we flew into Albany and then we drove from there oh, because okay. you, you mm -hmm. said, I think that's what we did. Gotcha. Uh, I'd have okay. to check that, but that seems to make sense in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then by the way, it was, it, it was the same thing going back. It's just going back was a much, much different experience than going there. Right. Uh, so, yeah. but I'll, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, um, so you, yeah, you're you're mentioning this guy Al Mancini. So you kind of have this like, you know, it's like a potential mentor, but he's older, he's experienced, intimidating. So, and already this is, it feels to me like this is a big jump up from anything you had ever done before. You know, like Woodstock '99. Yeah, it really was, and. You know, I, I want to say that by the time I was 26 years old, I, I was fortunate for a number of reasons, uh, just because I, I think at that point in my life, I had been exposed to a lot of really interesting people, uh, met a lot of famous and powerful people, met a lot of musicians as well, met a lot of famous athletes. So I was down for any sort of challenge uh, in, you know, in my life. I also had a thing going on. I had a personal thing in, uh, going on in my family, which was unpleasant. And I think that also uh, prepared me for big intimidating things as well, because I felt like if I could survive what had been going on uh, in my life, then you know I could probably, I, I could take on anything. And I, I did have a certain amount of pressure going on over there. I think my boss <laughs> at that point uh, had some regrets about hiring me. And wasn't really sure if I was the right person for the job. So, like, I had to go there and really prove myself. Mm -hmm. And proving yourself. You know, the yeah. outcome of that is I wound up working there for 18 years. So, I, I did wind up being the right person for the job. And I think uh, Woodstock 99 and covering Woodstock 99 really had a lot to do with that because it really shaped the way I approached uh, live news coverage and really covering uh anything that you know sort of turned out to be a disaster or you know maybe a somewhat violent or a dangerous news story mm, wow so you get you get to rome new york which day yeah. thursday so I, we actually got there on thursday so we got there for the pre-stuff and uh, th this is a this is kind of a fun story, uh, maybe maybe just for me. I might be the only one who's interested in this. So uh, Al and I we we pull up onto the base, and you know we park the car and we're looking for a publicist because we have no idea where to go. And uh, we meet this young publicist. Actually, she was an intern, and Al and her are talking about something, and I just say, "Wait a second, is that Vertical Horizon?" And both of them looked at me and they said, excuse me? I said, that band, that's playing. That's Vertical Horizon, right? <laughs> and uh, she's flipping through her pages. She's like, yeah. And then Al looks at me and he says, motherfucker, how did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reason why I knew that is because they had sent, you know, the publicist. I, I don't know if the album even came out yet, um, to tell you the truth, or if it was out. It was out briefly. They were not being played on the radio yet. But uh, I heard the album and I liked it and I gave it to my best friend because I thought he would like it. <laughs> I like, I think these guys are going to be a big deal. And, I mean, they, that, uh, that, that, that song was, was that song was huge. Uh, Everything yeah. you want. Yeah. Um, very, very big. I definitely remember hearing it a lot on the Atlanta modern rock radio. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you weren't wrong there. I think I, I yeah. find that to also be amusing. Um, yeah. uh, vertical horizon kind of it's, it's a fun, that song to me is really funny. Uh, their, their big song, the whole change up at the end from he's everything you want to, I am everything you want. I'm everything you want. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, the, I lead singer, over <laughs> the lead singer, I believe his name is Matt Scannell. I think that's how he pronounces his name. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I met him 
years later. And then also uh, somebody I went to high school with, uh, this uh, really talented woman named Jen Oberly. Uh, she's a bass player, guitarist, composer. She actually played with Vertical Horizon for, wow. <laughs> for a while, which Damn. is uh, good fun. So what was what was Thursday like? What was the environment? What was the vibe? I think, you know, Thursday, it, it, it seems pretty laid back. We were just getting the lay of the land. You know, the one thing that was immediately striking was how hot it was, <laughs> how much just how much concrete there was on this air force base which made sense because it was an air force base which means airplanes landed and took off from there so mm -hmm. there would have to be a runway and uh there would have to be a lot of concrete and uh so there was that but i, I want to say like you know al and i and I, I don't think anybody else nobody at that point we weren't expecting it to be a really bad situation because we didn't really we didn't really know i think al was preparing me constantly for the possibility that something could go wrong because he had covered um i think it was what was it miller repa so what was that show that the the beastie boys did uh i don't remember what it was called off the top of my head but the beastie boys uh had a concert festival in washington dc i think maybe the year before or earlier in the year and I think there was a, a lightning strike and a bad storm. And I think somebody died there and Al was there. And, you know, that was his entry into sort of disaster, uh, you know, news coverage, you know, instead of just going there to be a rock news reporter where, you know, you do, you interview some, some rock stars and some musicians, you know, you, you collect some audio, you talk to some people about the event and, you know, you write it up and, and you're done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he happened to be at that event with a very, very seasoned news reporter who taught Al a thing or two. And then Al turned around and taught that stuff to me. But on Thursday, we, you know, it, it was sort of kind of an uneventful day, just getting the lay of the land, uh, you know, watching some of the some of the pre-show bands and you know i don't really remember who they were other oh, vertical than vertical horizon, horizon. Is the one that, <laughs> yeah vertical horizon is the only one that really yeah. sticks out but you know i i do remember the, <laughs> i remember you, you know i think it was the main stage was that the west stage or the i get them confused um but the, the, uh, the main stage the was, east stage was the was kind of like the main the, like, oh the east yeah. stage right mm -hmm. okay so the east stage that whatever was the main stage was so far away from the press tent mm -hmm. and you know we knew that that was going to be the area that we would have to be at and i think i was more i was a little more deadline oriented than al was because al really wrote for what's called a a prep service and he didn't really need to file I, I don't think he really needed to file a lot of the stuff he was doing until sunday night where i was really working more for the news desk where they were expecting me to send them audio uh, every day and you know probably every six hours or so so i knew that if i had to go all the way <laughs> to that stage and come back i was trying to work out in my head like how strategically that, what, what would that what would that look like with my deadlines and you know wow you were trying to figure out how much we have to be in the press tent uh, for the press conferences and you know it wasn't just the press conferences but they were also bringing artists there and some of the interviews that al had arranged they were supposed to meet us in the press tent but also the uh, they also had an interview area 
by that E stage as well. And, you know, we were looking at, we, we were fortunate enough to stay in the old barracks. And, you know, we thought it was, that was going to be my that question. Was yeah. What's that? I was going to ask that. Yeah. So you yeah. got to stay on site. Yeah. And we were, you know, we were not, we were a little upset and like all, all the press, we were frustrated. <laughs> it's so stupid in hindsight because there was no hot water, mm, you know, mm -hmm. little did we know we had clean water. So that should have been good enough for us. <laughs> Spoiled <laughs> well, press. But, well, you just didn't yeah, know at the I mean, time that there was going, that the water was going to be shit water and that you would need yeah. to distinguish between clean water and shit water. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as any kind of large gathering of people has the potential to go horribly awry. So that's, yes. you know, you, you don't want to live your life being afraid of crowds. Uh, you might right. miss out on some great, I mean, I love going to concerts, so I will risk going to be in a crowd with, you know, five, 10, 15, 20,000 people. If I think it's going to be, you know, an incredible and worthwhile, well, yeah. memorable well, experience. I, I mean, parks, I, I kind of lived for that stuff at that point in my life. You know, I'm, I'm from New York city, you know, <laughs> I mean, my, my life, my life, I grew up in a crowd, really. I right, grew up with right. people on top of me. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up on subway trains and, and city buses and, you know, walking through the crowded streets of lower Manhattan or the upper West side or, or the East village or the upper East side, wherever you were, you know, when you're from New York city and you grow up in any of the five boroughs, inevitably you are living in a crowd. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very, very, very good point. Um, so you are staying in barracks, which I also think kind of is sort of plays it. Cause you know, it, it, Woodstock 99 has been, compared to a war zone. I do believe it was even you in the documentary when you saw all the people in the medical tent was, mm -hmm. is that, can I kind of attribute that? I said it was like you? a mass unit. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so, because exactly. it's like, there's sort of this whole irony of like, it's literally on a military base and you're staying yeah. in a barracks. And I mean, yeah. um, and so was like, was, would the goal, would it have been better if you were in a hotel? Was that like the golden place to stay? Hell yeah. 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 So <laughs> it, it, that would have been amazing. <laughs> right. Um, right. But it, it wasn't going to end. And, and I'm glad we weren't in a hotel, really, because like in hindsight, it would have been amazing. But at that time, the convenience of, of being on the base, you know, near the base and, you know, being able to walk not too far to the press tent from the barracks, I, that, that was a bonus. And it, it was helpful for our coverage. And it also kind of you know made you feel a little bit like the concert goers although nothing like the concert goers at right. the same time now i would say these days any music festival modern music festival is kind of accompanied by a huge fleet of golf carts to take people around who are working or artists or press i mean did you have any no. golf cart access no 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 we we did not i think there were a few press people who did especially anyone who was involved with mtv mm -hmm. you know i seem to recall that because and i mean mtv they had vip access right we did not have golf cards. even though it's um, you know ABC, I, I feel like which is funny yeah but but you know we were not we're, we were abc news radio you know radio we're, radio is the bastard child of um mass media <laughs> so uh it's not like you know we we were not accorded any special treatment 
because ABC was attached to our press credentials. Uh, you know, we were ABC News Radio. We pretty much knew our place. And, you know, that was something I learned as my career progressed in radio. You know, generally, oh, ABC News Radio, you're at the end of the line <laughs> on wow. the red carpet. Um, oh, ABC News Radio, oh, your seat's in the back of the press room. <laughs> and, you know, we were actually, we were pretty far back. Mm. <laughs> Come to think of it. And, you know, that was like what my first experience in going to a large event like that. And I think being in a big press room like that and, you know, immediately when the publicist showed us to the area, we're sitting at a table. I think we were in the very last row, in fact, wow. now which was really great for Al, who... <laughs> who kind of forced me uh well you know i i didn't have to go but i think it was on sat later on saturday night uh we left the base because al thought it was really important for us to find uh some beer in a liquor store just because i you know he had some interviews lined up and you know he wanted to be able to offer buck cherry jägermeister uh, hey, I love that. I love that. I was just about to ask, who were some of the folks that y'all were interviewing aside from Buck Cherry and their Jaeger? Well, I didn't interview anybody because I would. That was Al's job at, at you know at that point. But you and, were you uh, they, were you present? Were you present for these? Oh, I was. I was. Yes, mm -hmm. I was one hundred percent present for a mm -hmm. lot of the interviews. I mean, he he spoke to who came to the tent. So he definitely he interviewed Buck Cherry uh, in the tent. My um my goal was to meet marty uh, uh friedman from megadeth mm -hmm. uh, uh because he is <laughs> he's one of my closest friends cousins and uh, you know so i'd been hearing about him for years and so i wanted to make sure that i met him which i did and took a picture with him and then uh, but al interviewed a lot of people you know i remember he interviewed kid rock and i have a picture of him interviewing kid rock i think willie nelson um Avenge Sevenfold. Or Seven Dust. Seven Dust. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have my ears confused. Is that right? It's, um, it's they're two like heavy, aggressive bands with seven in the name. So. Right. And I'm also 50 years old um, <laughs> and tired. So, yeah, uh, he, got, he got a lot of good interviews and, uh, you know, I took a lot of good pictures of him interviewing people. Uh, you know, we we even, once when we, we went to see Megadeth, we got, uh, they, allowed, they allowed us in the photographer's pit. So, <laughs> nice. I had some really great pictures of Dave Mustaine. Nice. Uh, um, and yeah. so, and your, when you're, you had, to, you said daily, you had to report back daily yes. with with yeah. audio and so is i mean help me out with as far as the would that would be something that would then if they use it they would say we've we've got david from woodstock and then that would go out on radio like yeah what, so a I, clip I think, you've prepared right. or they're editing you're they're taking your audio and then they're editing it into yeah, i was primarily a, the, the, my instructions were this because I, you know my primary job at that point was to be a producer not an on-air reporter but i had permission to put myself on air whenever i thought it was necessary i just couldn't be gratuitous about it so huh. i did send back uh some voicers and i uh, a voicer is just you know a report that you just record straight up with no audio i sent back audio you know i wrote some raps you know so and that was not back <laughs> you wrote some like raps. 100 years ago what's that you wrote some raps 
Yeah, not 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 like uh, hip hop. I wasn't spitting fire or anything like that. I, you know, I I wrote around audio, so I wrote a script and then I would send the audio to New York and they would mix it on their end because uh, in, in 1999 we didn't quite have, you know, we didn't have Adobe Audition, right, right, <laughs> or, any, or anything like that where we could, or you know, we couldn't easily transfer MP3s. Uh, I recorded everything on a DAT and mm -hmm. you know had to play it and feed it through, uh, I think that was a Comrex line. I don't even think we had ISDN at that point. So that's that's how that worked. Oh, dang, you lost me at Comrex. That, I, I I was with you on the on the, the DAT. Right. But uh, Comrex is, I gotta do my research on that. I mean, I do find it fast, I find this very fascinating because it, yeah. you know, radio, you know, still was vi you know, I mean, honestly, I was listening to the radio today, but I can, you know, it still had, you know, it was a, uh, it was the nineties, you know? <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, radio, uh, parks, radio permeates everywhere. You know what? That's not true. It's still around. <laughs> no, I mean, it's still around. I was literally listening it, it, to it, it today. It's still, it's still around. It does not permeate everywhere. Um, uh, this is a conversation I like to have people with people, but uh, podcasts permeate everywhere. Yes. Like you can take a podcast into a subway and you could take a podcast into a tunnel. Although to be fair, uh, most good municipalities have um, Wi-Fi or, or 5G pumping through their tunnels and subway systems. Right. It's true. And I mean, this point, you could probably listen to radio online uh, via like via more a podcast format. So but it, it's still a radio station by name. But anyway, we, we're digressing a bit here. Mm -hmm. So so Thursday night. Uh, so you see Vertical Horizon. Um, you're I mean, it's it's not everyone's there. You're in the barracks. Uh, then Friday hits, I mean, is it, I would kind of assume you're kind of waking up as early as you can to like hit the ground and start to. Yeah, that's a, that's correct. But you know, we were not, we knew that we were not going to see James Brown in person. We knew that we were going to be in the press tent because we needed to be there. I think specifically to get some sound, some opening press conference sound, and we couldn't, we just couldn't be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember we were we were watching the James Brown feed uh, specifically. I mean, for us here at Podcast Ninety Nine, us Woodstock Ninety Nine nerds, the fact that you were in the press tent is amazing uh, because yeah. there was any footage I've seen from some of those really contentious moments when mm -hmm. shit started to hit the fan. I mean, that feels like ooh, I would you know I would love to be a fly on the wall. Uh, when John Sher and Michael Lang are fielding some of these questions about how the festival is going down, so so you did you go every single day? Is that kind of how you started your day? Was the the morning yeah, press I conference? Yeah, we we were at the press conference uh, first thing, nice. and then Al, you know, occasionally had to go somewhere and meet some people to do interviews, and you know he would go, and I might stay in the press tent. Uh, when he he would come back, and then I would go out, and you know I was trying to find some good stories to tell. Um, you know, whether it was talking to repeat, you know, concert goers and, you know, I certainly spoke to plenty and, you know, whether they were, uh, rolling in mud, uh, whether it was women or, or women who had their breasts painted or, um, which was in hindsight, uh, ridiculous and, uh, you know, people who, who had come from all over the country 
you know, that, that actually, that was something I like to do at like anytime I went to a festival or went somewhere to cover some big event, uh, like a thing I'd love to do is I just wanted to get people to say where they were from. And then I would quit, you know, go back and quickly mix that up into like a montage and make it part of the piece. Uh, and I think I got that idea from Woodstock 99. Nice. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, we were, I would go, you know, when different bands were playing, I would just go and stick my microphone up by a speaker for ambient sound, you know, just to tell that story of, you know, who was playing, you know, hopefully somebody would say something good from stage. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty much what we were doing. If we, we both tried to see artists that we wanted to see, you know, it just didn't always work out because it, you know, it did it didn't work out with our, with our, de well, with my deadline anyway, and with Al's interviews. Now on Friday, some of these artists would be like G Love, mm -hmm. Special Sauce, Jamiroquai, Cheryl Crow, mm -hmm. The Offspring, mm -hmm. Buck Cherry, ICP, Corn. Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember any of, of these artists that you, you saw? I can't believe you didn't mention Mo. <laughs> uh, you know, okay, okay. <laughs> no, so, I, I mean, I can uh, name them all. We had Mo, Oleander, yeah. uh, we had DMX. Uh, did, did, did you see? So, did you see Mo? I did not see Mo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember um, their manager, kind of, who was a real nice guy, um, was like working overtime to try to get us to interview Mo, and I think. I, I and I could be wrong about this, but I, I'm pretty sure Mo is from Western New York, I think. And you know, I'm I'm connected to Western New York because I spent a, a significant amount of time in uh, in Buffalo. I think I think they're did, from Buffalo. Yeah, we, we did. Like I went to, I went to school. Like I went to school in Buffalo, and my first professional radio job was in Buffalo while I was going to college, which was a pretty awesome thing. But I'm trying to remember like everybody I saw that day. I mean, you um, said you saw ICP. I definitely saw ICP. Um, you know, that was, I had to, like, I had to see ICP. And uh, the reason, did, should I tell that story? Yeah. 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 So the reason why I wanted to see ICP is probably about, maybe it was four years earlier. My friend Pete Weisenberger, um, who, ha who has since passed, a very talented guy, had a band called Me and Pete. And he was performing in a bar, like not far from Buffalo State College in Buffalo. And after, you, you know, I remember they were performing and, you know, a couple of few guys walked in. They were obviously from the next band and they were wearing clown makeup. And we were like, OK, <laughs> let's let's uh, let's watch this. And then a bunch of us are talking like all of Pete's friends uh, were talking in the corner. And suddenly there they are. What is it? Shaggy too dope. I don't remember the other yep. guy's name. Violent J, Violent J. Violent J and Shaggy mm -hmm. too dope. That it is Shaggy too dope, right? It's Shaggy too dope. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There we go. And then you know, suddenly they're just jumping around on stage, uh, rapping. I'm like, wow, this is actually um, interesting. Like, I, yeah. I, I didn't hate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it was amusing, but we didn't stay to watch their whole set. But here's the thing: outside of Pete's friends, there were maybe 15 people in the bar. So I was super excited to go see this band play in front of, you know, 40 or 50,000 people because they were on the other stage um, that I had seen play in this tiny little bar. That was important to me. And what did that, did that, did that pay off? 
How, how was that? How did that take? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was insane. I mean, they were, I, I mean, they were everything that they promised to be. I mean, they were incredibly outrageous. They were ridiculously hyper sexualized. I, I mean, I do, I remember that. Um, I remember the, the big, you know, they, they had those big balls that they were, that's funny. They had the, mm-hmm. those big balls that they were throwing Taping. from the stage. Mm-hmm. I think they attached money to it or something like that. Yeah, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. Right. right, and I remember they had girls on stage and they were groping them, and you know that I, you know I think contributed to or was the beginning of the hypersexualized atmosphere that you had at Woodstock '99. That also I think empowered some men to be doing things that they just should not have been doing to women Mm, if you're if you're maybe seeing some artists on stage doing it there's you know a a mimicking behavior well if violent j is doing it i can do it too they did also um have these guys in clown masks that were naked other than their clown masks uh something that isn't talked about a whole lot was it's i'm that i'm starting to learn more about from like heather's uh story is is the male nudity and some of the creative uh, painting, body painting. Did you see anything like that? Yeah. You know, so I interviewed a number of women who had body paint on. So I should also, I should couch this this way. The nudity was not that big of a deal to me, okay. <laughs> which is sort of a strange thing to say. So I was raised by a nudist, which, oh. is, a true, which is a true story. So my dad was a nudist my mom is the opposite she's very prudish which uh, you know always made for an interesting time he was not allowed to walk around naked in our house um but you know he did go to nudist resorts and nude beaches and he used to take me to nude beaches when i was a little kid um so wow seeing seeing um the male and the female form naked out in the open wasn't really uh wasn't really shocking to me i think like it was to other people although i certainly recognized that it was (laughs) so and i don't actually remember seeing naked men i i don't you know i i know we've seen the footage (laughs) Yeah. Um, At this point, you had just yeah. you, had, you had been to the nudist colonies. Yeah, so I, much. I think it just I was didn't, just like, it just didn't yeah. register. You, you know, whatever. Um, there are yeah. people not wearing clothes. It, you know, it's Woodstock. Uh, you know, that it, it's a it's a little strange. But I don't think I don't remember seeing a ton of naked men. I don't remember seeing any naked men really. But you know, <laughs> there were women everywhere uh, mm-hmm. with their shirts off, but right. primarily with body paint. Yeah, and and that in itself seems like such a very '90s thing. The the kind of day glow, shiny, holographic, the sexy butterfly. I mean, I feel like as an adolescent of the time, I feel like Victoria's Secret was doing a lot of these like sexy body painting things. So like that, that feels super '90s to me. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that was a '90s thing or not. I, you know, maybe I didn't. I just didn't really pay attention to, <laughs> to it. Uh, you know, at Woodstock '99, I paid attention to it. You know, I'm. A, I was still. I was a 26 year old single guy, so I am going to pay attention to that. You know, a, a little bit. 
but it, it wasn't, I don't think it had the shock value for me mm-hmm. that it had on your average person. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, hey, you heard it at Podcast 99, you know, parent raised by a nudist dad. That's, that's why I love doing you know, it. And, and <laughs> then you, you obviously you have flea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? 99, uh, which that was funny. But, you know, for me, that wasn't necessarily shocking because I had seen the red hot chili peppers at that point multiple times. And, the, and, and that I was knew part that of that their was thing. thing. Nudity, that was a thing that flea liked socks. to do. Usually, yeah. He usually had the sock on. Though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he forgot his sock at Woodstock. Yeah. So uh, let's see. So here we are. We're Friday. I mean, as far as the some of these the environment i mean you said it's hot i mean like what i what i've seemed to gather is uh, people seem to have a lot of energy rolling in friday because some of the worst shit that was going to happen hadn't really happened yet yeah i I think at at that particular point like i know at that point nobody was expecting bad things to happen but i think what was becoming apparent you know because i hadn't really heard it myself but al was hearing it, people were starting to complain about the price of water. They were starting, you know, we we heard very little rumblings uh, that people were complaining about it. And then we both have eyes and we could also see that things were expensive, you know, and it's not something we were necessarily paying close attention to at first because, you know, we had plenty of food. Um, so it's not, we we didn't have to go out, uh, you know, onto the festival grounds to try to buy food or to buy water so it wasn't something we were paying uh, close attention to at first mm-hmm. but i do remember i also you know i i was a, a big fan of the band live and i wanted to go see live so i i did work my way down there uh and you know I, and i worked at the same time you know while i was watching live i was also doing mos which stands for man on the street stuff so i you know i was getting sound from uh, attendees and you know, trying to get natural sound of live playing. You know, I, I had no desire to stick around to watch Cheryl Crow. I was interested in DMX, but I do also think at around that time, I did have to get back to the press tent to file, which, yeah, that makes sense because that's why I would have been collecting MOS. And like I, I was so, only collecting MOS <laughs> as something that I could file as audio to New York. And so, I mean, what is this, like a 7 p.m. deadline, an 8 p.m. deadline? I don't remember. I probably, probably more like 3 o'clock or something like that, maybe. Can, can I ask, like, why is that accounting for the day before? Because it seems like an uh, odd no, time. That's, that's accounting for this day. So uh, just... So I could explain it maybe a little better or clarify. ABC News Radio is a 24-7 news operation. Okay. So, and they have they have multiple different news networks that uh, cater to different size markets. And they do newscasts at the top of the hour and newscasts at the bottom of the hour. And also they would feed, they feed their, their affiliates uh, every hour clips of whatever Uh, you know the news is and and clips could be anything from an interview with somebody um a report from somebody sound from an event you know whatever whatever the big news story is at that moment abc news radio at like you know cbs will do the same thing or various other 
radio networks would also do the same thing. I mean, that's that's part of their business that they are providing audio not just to their news desk for their anchors to do in their newscast, mm-hmm. but to their affiliates around the country as well. Now, can I ask? I mean, do you still have this stuff? These tapes. Which one? These tapes. I, I have some of it. Yeah. Have you? I you mean, know, have I, you? I have. Um, have you gone back and? and listened to a lot only of it only because uh, so uh, the only reason why i listened to any of it was because of the netflix documentary right mm-hmm. and so i um you know they they asked me also and you know i i actually said right away when they called me that i think i still have audio but it, it was challenging because the audio i have is on dat tapes and so you have I to get have, a, a, it, which is redundant it's just a dat, a dat tape sure. is redundant so uh, you know i had to find a dat player which is hard to come by which i eventually did and the entire time i only had one dat and i knew that another one existed but i did not know if i had possession of it i did not know if it was sitting in a box somewhere in the bowels of uh, of abc so I, I didn't know. And this, the funny story about that is the night before I left to go to New York to sit down for my interview for the documentary, I found the dat. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a treasure trove. It was only 12 I, minutes, but that was the dat which had the stuff from the limp biscuit mm, and we'll get into yeah cool. and we're, we'll get into that on in, in in the timeline i mean i could only right. imagine that those tapes would just be an incredible snapshot uh much in the same way that these all these pay-per-view footage uh that's on youtube is is this kind of raw snapshot of it because it's not really edited in a, a doctored up way so i mean if yeah if i could well, I could, well what insane about it is i was very very inexperienced when i went there you that know, makes I it better that makes it even better you know? <laughs> it, it does and you hear me there are multiple times where you hear me trying over and over and over again to do uh like a live report to tape and i keep screwing it up <laughs> man oh, <laughs> and, i and, love uh, it yeah no it it, it, it it's pretty hilarious at first like i'm like oh this is embarrassing i don't want anybody to hear it and then i was like you know what this is what happened this is who i was this is this is honestly you know this is a rookie reporter mm-hmm. trying to work shit out so i'm not i'm not really embarrassed about uh people hearing it at this point but it, you know it took me a, a few minutes to come to that conclusion <laughs> and be okay with it but yeah you do hear a lot of that and you know uh, but i also have interviews with a lot of people who were there and then you also hear me walking around um i think there's one point where i kind of almost got into a fight with some kid (laughs) because he was he got in my face he got in my face and he insisted that i put him on tv and i kept (laughs) i'm like do you see a tv camera i'm a radio reporter (laughs) and now because i mean they kind of talked about some of that anti-mtv anti-media vibe i mean would you kind of say that that was part of it or is this just a drunk idiot who thought you had a camera no he was just a drunk idiot and there was a there was a lot of that there that even happened uh quite a bit um well i i mean that that, that's for a little later but you know i i was there when that sound tower fell down right and uh you know i feel like that's that failed sound tower is almost an iconic image as far as woodstock 99 is concerned you know and the damage of the next day like 
everybody who was showing footage like that was the one picture they kept showing over and over again and i was there truly um, that's amazing and i still have that audio and well i'm that, i'm gonna say if if it's yeah. not something we try to cement out off air as or whatnot but i i would highly suggest uh trying to compile that and digitize it um i mean you know i think that that could be a great snapshot um i mean people people are into that stuff if nothing else here us here at podcast 99 would be would be really into hearing as much i know i have some of it on my phone um that's (laughs) that's amazing now just to to move along in the timeline friday night i I mean you mentioned you were a big corn fan and did you see corn so i did not see their entire set that was also i think that was a I, I and again I'm not a hundred I don't have this a hundred percent right in my head, but it was either I had to go back to file audio or I needed to go back file audio and I wanted to go see ICP. Mm, so <laughs> and, and it, I'm like pretty sure I ICP think, was way, was a uh, way before corn. Was it way before? They okay, were still the, in the daytime, leave. and corn right, was definitely okay, like then, at uh, night. Oh yeah, no ICP was like a dusk. Like mm-hmm. when they started, yep. it was light, yep. and when they ended, it was dark. Mm-hmm. Right on. So I had to go back and file audio. That's what I had to do, and I remember that the, the tapes actually reminded me of that because i definitely wanted to stay to watch corn and i knew that i couldn't and i couldn't remember if it was because i needed to go see ICP or if it was because i had to file but it's way more likely i would have left corn to file for mm-hmm. my job mm-hmm. <laughs> that i would have for icp i have um i do have audio of me interviewing some people and you can hear corn in the background oh amazing um let's let's try to maybe we can you can send it to me if if you're interested in that um after after don't the the thing is i don't think i'm allowed to Uh, (laughs) like like, technically i don't know if that's legal dang well (laughs) that's a that's dangling a sweet carrot that sounds um but did you on so then if we move on so friday after so did you see the rave at all? Yes, I saw a little, very, very little bit. And I, I do have a file on my phone that says the tower falls. <laughs> so oh, man. I assume, I do assume that's the audio. Sorry to tease you. Oh, um, that's a big tease. Yeah, yeah. That is a, that is a big tease. Damn, um, but that's great. Uh, it's you a have... minute and 30 seconds. So I don't know exactly what would be uh, in that file. What What was the question that you asked me? Uh, just as far as like the rave like like just kind of asking yeah. you how your friday night ended because now we're fully into you know day one of the festival and just how how so this, how this is gonna end? this is gonna be a boring answer i don't i didn't go to the rave on friday night i was there on, on saturday night gotcha okay we uh, i think we were i I think we were spent and you know i think we were just very focused from the last two you know because we got there on thursday we got up early on friday i think you know i I also think that was the day we were running back and forth to the main stage so al could do his interviews and i think we were just really tired at the end of friday we knew saturday was going to be a big day so it's pretty boring but that was i think we kind of 
yeah. decided as soon as the music was over, uh, we were done. But Saturday was a huge day, um, as you know mentioned in the like one one of your big moments in the the Netflix documentary is you know you you took your recorder into the Limp Biscuit pit. Obviously, Limp Biscuit yeah. being the one of the most I mean probably the most infamous performance, maybe you know Red Hot Chili Peppers at the end too. Uh, so you kind of had you kind of had your 26 year old piss and vinegar. You had this experience of a mosh pit. You know, you're, you're like a pit, a seasoned pit veteran. So right. you're like, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna get my recordings in into the into the pit. So I mean, tell me about the Limp Biscuit concert. So you know, I, I was excited to see Limp Biscuit because I, I I was a fan. You know, I'm not gonna sit here and be like yeah, I was a huge Limp Biscuit fan at the time because Limp Biscuit had been around for, <laughs> for that long and uh you know when when i was there when i walked up yeah obviously you could see how huge the crowd was and i don't think i was there for the i wasn't there for the very beginning of the set i feel like i missed the first song and then you know so i'm just standing on the side and it was when they played the song 1999 that i realized i'm going in I'm going into this pit. I'm like, and you know, because it was crazy. I, I mean, they, they don't show, I don't think they show that on any documentary, but I, I'm pretty sure you could find that online somewhere that it was, that was, it, it was like an earthquake. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was like when, yeah. when Fred Durst says, you know, whatever that line is. And now, what is the line? It's now like, now you motherfuckers got a reason to jump. I got a reason to jump yeah. and then everybody starts jumping yeah and it was richter scale level uh earthquake vibes and yeah. I'm, like, I'm like i'm going in there I'm like you, you know i know that our listeners our demographic they've never heard sound from inside a mosh pit most people haven't i had seen all the other reporters who were there no tv crews are going in the middle of a mosh pit uh, I saw the radio reporters that were there, and I was pretty certain none of them were going into a mosh pit. So, like, you know, what what can I do that would give me, you know, some sort of advantage or make me shine in the eyes of my boss back home because I needed all the help I could get at that point? I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm going into that mosh pit. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, you're like uh, Bill Paxton and in Twister over here, you know, like audio from the middle of a mosh pit at Woodstock yeah <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous now uh you know like i didn't think it was i didn't think it was that big of a deal to do that you know i didn't think it was anything special in that particular moment uh, you know the the thing that i noticed though about that pit that seemed different than any other pit that i'd ever been in besides the scope besides the size it was the, the biggest mosh pit i'd ever seen in person that didn't bother me what bothered me was all the shit that was flying around <laughs> i mean people were you know there were bottles frisbees shoes i got hit with every with every single one of those um i definitely uh got hit in the head a few times from people who were being passed over me <laughs> and then you know you can't when you're in a mosh pit you can't get too close to to the stage like you can't you can't be a few rows from the stage and be in a mosh pit because when you're a few rows from the stage you can't move mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that's a, 
there, you're gonna there's get no squished. Right you're gonna yeah. get squished. Yeah, you're just you're, you're just being crushed. Or so you're gonna get kicked in I the back. Want, I, like I didn't. Yeah, I didn't want to get that close. I probably got as close as maybe about thirty yards. No, not even that. No, probably more like fifty yards. And uh, that was when I I was, and you could hear it on the tape too. You like you could hear me stop the tape because I'm sitting there trying to narrate what's going on, and. I started, stop, started, stop uh, on the documentary. You actually hear me do something and they timed it really well with what was going on in yeah. the video, which was a, uh, which was a pretty cool thing to see. Gosh, I mean, that but just I, sounds incredible. Like, a yeah, incredible... But, but I stopped it because I saw this girl get hit in the head with a glass mm. bottle and, and, and she's bleeding oh, everywhere. Yeah. And then I, yeah, I followed her backstage. I don't know if you want me to talk about that. And then, and then that was kind of where you, you made the mash comment right exactly so that was really and you know i'd seen some bad things in my life at that point but this just looked pretty bad it was there was blood everywhere i mean that's not hyperbole or an exaggeration there Mm -hmm. was blood on the cement there was blood on cots uh there was a girl getting staples put in her head uh, you know, there was the girl who I followed back there and I was watching them take care of her and they also put staples in her head. And then the other girl that I saw was just, um, it was like she was lost. You know, she looked completely bewildered, didn't know where her friends were. She had gotten separated. You know, her head was hurting. You know, she just had an ice pack. You know, that was it. You know, they didn't send you to the hospital or anything. Mm-hmm. They just stabled up her head and they're like, go. So I hung out with her and got the attention of a security guard on the side of the stage and i asked multiple times for them to make an announcement so she could find her friends and i stayed with her until after the set was over and they eventually did make an announcement oh. and so that fun moment spilled over into the press conference the next day because john sure everything was sunshine and roses and then that's when you know he really started the the press really started to push back on on him just mm-hmm. because of how chaotic that day how chaotic and violent saturday had been and he's sitting there telling us that you know that's not what we saw and why don't we focus on on all the good stuff yeah i mean everybody wants to focus on the good stuff that's nice and we wish we had a lot of good stuff to focus on but at the same time there was some very bad stuff going on and our job is to report that we can report the good stuff too i know at covering it for abc news radio we reported plenty of good stuff you know we we sent out interviews for you know sound bites from the band we said you know we sent out sound bites of people saying that they were having a great time but you know then there was this other thing going on where you know and it always feels a little weird for me to compare anything to a war just because a war is a separate animal and you know people that well people died at woodstock 99 but not you know you know what i'm saying not in the same way but i mean it was pretty brutal what i witnessed and the fact that this girl who you know got separated from her friends was backstage had staples in her head uh you know had had to walk back into uh, you know an unsterile environment you know very dirty hot environment that didn't speak too well to how the whole thing had been organized and and again i'm sure i I just to me it feels like just the fact that you're on an army base uh you know the the barracks the actual 
infrastructure itself is you know was created because of war i mean that can't right there has to be some can't level escape it. of irony there it's, um, it's the elephant in the room and so we, at like i mean this might be an obvious question but at what point did you, was it during Limp biscuit or at what point did you feel hey this feels a little bit sketchy it, no, it, it was going backstage and seeing what I saw. That was or, or that whatever was, you want to say off off stage, off to the yeah. side of the stage so in, the, in that medical area. That that was kind of like a shock, like an eye opening. Like it's it's not just this one girl with the bottle. Like there's the people are getting fucked up everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and also I w- I will say this that I was briefly at the rave on Saturday night, mm-hmm. and, and there were so many people on the floor, passed out on the side who were out of it and that was that was also a little weird to me i mean i had been to a lot of concerts in in my day and even one grateful dead concert <laughs> where like everybody was tripping and you know but i i had never seen anything like that so that to me you said this is not great this mm-hmm. is there's you know there's something wrong here like putting starting to put those elements together you know this is not uh, this is not what it was supposed to be gotcha so then on so saturday i mean is this starting to i guess creep into what you're sending but like the rate the audio you're sending back are you starting to include this the the um Limp Biscuit stuff, I 100% included. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, we, we didn't have the ability to like open up a mic and start talking about the rave, mm-hmm. you know, especially I, I didn't have a microphone with me. I mean, that was like, we, we were trying to have fun. You know, we, we were better rested than we were the day before. And, mm-hmm. you know, we both decided, uh, Al Mancini, the uh, reporter and producer who I was there with, we, you know, that we both decided that, you know, we're going to try to have some fun after work on, on Saturday, which we, you know, which we tried to do and we did, but the rave, <laughs> the rave wasn't, the rave wasn't fun. And, and mm-hmm. also I will tell you that at 26, I was still actively going to raves in my personal life. Mm, okay. Gotcha. So, so as someone who was into the rave scene in the nineties, this one was, uh, not, not your bag. No, and I will also say that I started getting into raves in the eighties. Oh, okay. <laughs> when I was in high school. Nice. Like that's how far back. Yeah. I, I go. Well, I mean, yeah. I wish I could have. Uh, that's one. That's one nineties thing. I definitely wish I could have uh, participated in. 80s, you missed a good time. Eighties and nineties raves. Um, so, I mean, did you partake any recreational off work type of stuff or you're like other than right now no i'm yeah. kidding parks okay. um the no i did not uh the only thing we did do uh you know we drank mm-hmm. we had alcohol um it was after everything was over and it was um you know al and i you're like al going for conjoined. a beer after work but yeah. it just happens to be woodstock 99 <laughs> right 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 yeah. and it was uh, al really wanted to get off the base and find a liquor store and i think he he partially because he wanted to drink some Jägermeister, but also partially because he was interviewing a few bands, most notably Buck Cherry. And yeah. I think he wanted to be able to offer them <laughs> oh, alcohol, which uh, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. 
No, I love, and um, so that's, I mean, I don't know, that sounds kind of exciting to like, ooh, I can, like, did it feel weird to leave Woodstock for a second? It did, and and I want to say that I was being a total tight ass <laughs> because I was afraid. You were I, like I was not. So you were like we're not supposed trouble. to leave or something. Yeah, no, uh, I, I was not. not I, I was afraid of getting in trouble with work. Like I was afraid of being perceived as unprofessional. Because remember, I would only started working that job two months earlier. Right, and <laughs> so, then but then you've got the grizzled uh, I, veteran who's like, and then I could also imagine him being like, "Come on, you pussy!" Like. We're getting a beer. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, he was. Uh, oh, he was encouraging me. He was definitely the devil on my shoulder, but uh, I was not listening to him. <laughs> was, I love this uh, dynamic. It was a, it, was a, it was a great dynamic. But I, and then Al and I, you know, we we turned out to be great friends uh, for years and years. And and just so I want to say this about Al Mancini. He now lives in Las Vegas. He is uh, one of Las Vegas's premier food writers. And uh, he also has an app called Neon Feast. <laughs> I'm giving it a plug, but it's amazing. Um, he's uh, he's a very very interesting, intelligent guy. And if anybody who's listening to this ever goes to Las Vegas, you must download this app. Um, and you know, it's great. He's a great kind of catchphrase or tagline. It's like Yelp without the assholes. <laughs> oh, nice, <laughs> which nice. is great because 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 Al is like he's super connected in Las Vegas with like every famous chef, every single restaurant and like every food writer. So he decided that he was going to put together this particular uh, app and curate like a great experience for anyone who uses it. And, you know, he did, he didn't want to do something like Yelp where anybody who has an ax to grind can just post something, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. Awesome. But that, that's that's who that's who Al that's who Al is. Right. And, uh, I mean, it sounds like you earned your stripes in this and it, you know, you've kind of mentioned that it, it, you know, this experience kind of like, it, I mean, this feels like something where you level up and you're like, I, I fucking did Woodstock. And so like, you know, I deserve to be here. Right. And, and you know, I, I guess I didn't really think of it in, in those terms. I uh, for me, it was more like a uh, survival. Right. <laughs> uh, it was like, it was like feast or famine. So and yeah, I feasted. And so, so, so then on, Cause then on Sunday, I mean, I feel like that's really, um, sexual assault, notwithstanding, which seemed to have happened, you know, I mean, that's that getting information about those has been probably one of the most difficult things, uh, to get like, tr like some of that information, but that notwithstanding, it seems like Sunday is when people are like, wow, like no one's picked up the trash, the water's all fucked up uh the peace walls coming down and then like that that to me seems like when it really started to be like all right the infrastructure of this place is about to come under attack so i mean what i mean the descriptions of sunday morning like what was yours well sunday morning i think it started out with that press conference so it started out on a pretty negative note and because you had some you had some words for john share yeah, you know, he was just sitting there again, all sunshine and roses. Nothing's bad. It's a few bad actors. You know, this is great. We're like a small city. If we if this was a small city, you know, these little the, these little crimes peccadillos would be no big deal, right? Which of course was was crazy. 
and everybody, virtually everybody taking the microphone was taking him to task. And, you know, he really was glossing over what happened at Limp Biscuit, And I felt like I had to correct him. And I'll tell you what, when I took that microphone, I was nervous. <laughs> this is the first time in my life I was ever doing anything like this. I'm, I'm taking a microphone and, you know, we got a, a pretty big press corps right there. And I'm going to engage this guy and maybe say something controversial. And it's a guy that, you know, I, I have respect for. I he's, know he's a who big he is. dude. Yeah. Big yeah, guy I in the concert promoter world. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how this is going to go over. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, Parks. I forgot that it happened. <laughs> it, until, um, you know, I started talking to the production company that did the documentary. I had zero recollection of it until they brought it up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. And then uh, they showed me the video. <laughs> like, oh, wow. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, I'm so glad the, I did that. So they had the document. They had they had the the footage of it, and you yeah. saw it. And so yeah, how did you uh, how did you? What was your analysis of this kind of moment with John Share, twenty years later? From my perspective, I was yeah. like, you know, that was that was kind of brave of me. I wish I was a little more articulate. And you know, the people at the production, the producer who I was working with at the at the time, who had been talking to me, he's like, no, no, you were you were articulate. You know, you. You made your point mm -hmm. and you know like I, I don't know what else to really say about that other than you know he he got what he deserved mm -hmm. <laughs> you know we were asking him tough questions because he deserved to receive tough questions because he wasn't giving proper answers and you are this person presiding over this massive festival where you have all these people where the infrastructure is going to shit people are uh demonstrably getting injured and severely hurt and there are parts of your festival that are chaotic and dangerous you need to own up to it and you need to do something about it and he wasn't and he didn't and he still hasn't <laughs> Damn. Yeah. And I mean, as we saw in the Netflix documentary, there was definitely some, some, uh, very kind of revealing quotes from Cher, though, maybe not revealing in what he didn't say on the documentary. And yeah, he kind of, Ryan likes to Ryan, my, the, the podcast partner, he, he likes to call him sort of like the man in the high castle. Like he, you know, he kind of, mm -hmm. He he did it did feel almost political in in his maneuvering of you know trying to control the narrative like kind of probably yeah. realizing like all right the media is going to have a frenzy with this so I've got to like start doing damage control right here right now on this microphone uh, any of that little footage I've seen from the the press tent is incredible um, yeah. so now you're I mean are you kind of fired up charged up from this as you go out for your last day no i i think you know there was part of me that kind of couldn't wait for it to end mm -hmm. <laughs> i think I, I think i just wanted to get it over with I, you know i don't you know for me personally at this point it, it did start now feeling like it was you know more of a job and i wasn't necessarily having that much fun not that that was a particularly important thing, 
But I'm like, all right, you know, I survived these three days, you know, let's just get it over with, you know, and I, I really wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, this could really go south. I wasn't feeling like, you know, that there necessarily could be a riot, but there was still something wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it still didn't feel right. There was still something in the atmosphere. And, you know, I'm, I'm also one of those people where I'm, I'm an extremely positive person, but I'm also extremely skeptical at the same time. And I, I don't know how those two things exist in my brain, but, but they just do. So I'm like, you know, this is going to, this will turn out. Okay. There's evidence to the contrary, but this will mm-hmm. turn out. Okay. And, you know, we'll wrap things up tonight. We'll hit our deadlines. You know, I even started writing my pieces that, I, you know, that I was going to file that night I started, you know, I was, I was editing audio. I had things that I was set to send. And, you know, I think really for me, the only thing that was missing was I, I felt I needed, you know, some man on the street audio, you know, some, I needed some concert goers talking about to sum up how the weekend went. And, you know, I thought it would be a good idea to get some, you know, some sound from, you know, one or two of the, the last acts. And I think we were pretty satisfied with uh, seeing Megadeth, <laughs> getting some sound from Megadeth. And we knew that at that point, we could probably pull some sound mm-hmm. from one of the feeds from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, just for like some ambient uh, sound, good quality sound. And so, you know, we weren't, we weren't that concerned about it. So what happened was after Megadeth, I um, went, I think I went back to the press tent and I started filing stuff and then i was like oh i I better run out there and get some more mos and i ran out and i got some more mos and then i got back to the press tent and al looked at me he's like do you know what's happening (laughs) Mm. no i don't i don't he's like look at the monitor i did and i see some bonfires Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. you know you gotta go you gotta go back out there (laughs) like you do it's like yeah you know they're setting stuff on fire you gotta go i'm like all right i'm going I am out. No, you know, no. You know, at this yeah, very and, moment and, of yeah, you and, going and, out, you know, sorry, yeah, real, and, and, real quick. At this yeah. very single moment, yeah. I mean, is the feeling, is it excitement? Is it fear? I mean, like, what is kind of that feeling of like, all right, I got to go report on these fires that aren't supposed to happen. Like, I really want to know what you were feeling at that very moment. I had a lot of conflicting thoughts. Um, one, I knew because it was almost a mile. <laughs> the stage (laughs) right and i I was i was pretty wiped i'm like all right so that was thought number one thought number two is you know uh, this will also be a good opportunity for me to wrap things up and you know do a voicer and talk to some people and uh number three you know I, i really wasn't thinking that this was an emergency situation i was just thinking oh you know this is now this is now like a little bit of a different news story so i'm just going to go with it i'm just going to go with it because I, I mean that that's generally how i am all the time whatever the situation is i'm just going to go with it you know i'm not going to get necessarily you know super nervous about it you know you know i did say earlier that, that i was nervous about talking to john Sher in front of all those people that's different you know because that i made the choice to do that but if i don't have a choice in this situation i'm not going to get nervous mm-hmm. i'm not going to get upset i'm just going to roll with it and we'll see what happens from there and then when you did 
roll up, you know, what was then what was that like? So what I, I saw a couple of the fires and from my perspective, it didn't look like it was terrible yet, but I also realized that those fires would go well in whatever I was reporting on. You know, it was something that I could mention and describe uh, while I was wrapping things up, which uh, what I was trying to do, um, I got, you know, pretty close to the stage, uh, you know, grabbed some people to talk to, tried to do some reports, which I kept screwing up because I was new and I sucked at my job. <laughs> then when I finally got something that was satisfying, I'm like, all right, um, I started hearing drumming. Right. And I started hearing people chanting. I'm like, all right, this is now going in a different direction than I anticipated. And uh, this is turning into something I I didn't expect. And now we have a real news story. So, you know, I got to go pull up my big boy pants and go do what I got to do. So, you know, I'm like, all right, let me head to one of these fires. And so I get to one of the fires and they have a drum circle and they're chanting. And I'm, you know, I'm recording, I'm recording it. You know, I'm recording the natural sound. And then, you know, I, I looked up, I think it was to my left because I heard some people yelling and I see people crawling all over that sound tower. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, that's the, famous the story. Sound yeah, right. Yeah, that, that, that's the story. So I head to that sound tower. And I have to tell you, Parks, that I just thought what I, what I was seeing was so incredibly absurd. Mm -hmm. Like, like, why are they behaving this way? Why are they climbing this tower? This is so stupid. <laughs> like these people are idiots. I'm like, um, and and what can I do? Like, there's nothing I could do because I thought they might get really hurt. So all I could do is stand by and and watch what was going on. And uh, I had a couple of people. I, I had a couple of poor pe people come up to me and ask me if I could put them on TV. <laughs> Same discussion, right, uh, right. That I had with uh, some people in the in the Limp Bizkit pit. I'm like, I, sorry, I don't have a camera. I can't put you on TV and I got to go. And then, you know, uh, I'm trying to record, get natural sound of what's going on. And then it became very obvious that the tower was about to fall. Right. And I was talking about this all in, I was recording all of this. I was talking about it and uh, I described the tower falling. And then I stayed silent because I knew I needed the sound of the tower crashing on the floor, you know, hoping that nobody would get hurt, but you know, that's no, nobody got hurt and I could clearly see that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was that. So as, as soon as that happened and as soon as it was over, I, I looked around, made sure nobody was hurt and I ran back to the press tent. Mm -hmm. Cause you're like, I, have, file, I got some yeah, shit now yeah, I got to some. file that audio. Cause I knew, mm -hmm. and, and I knew nobody else, I knew nobody else had that, you know? I was definitely, for what it's worth, if it's worth anything, the first person to report on that tower falling. Um, wow! Which Props. which felt you know felt pretty good for me mm -hmm. professionally, but also again, it was never lost on me how absurd and ridiculous those people were behaving. And I remember um, a couple of days later, I was hanging out with some people I know. And uh, this guy says to me, it's like, Dave, I heard you on the radio. I heard that Woodstock thing. He's like, you sounded so stoned. <laughs> like, and, and I said, I wasn't stoned. I was 
almost laughing because I thought these people were acting so absurd. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's what you heard. I was not high. I'm uh, like, those people were high. <laughs> I was not. And I love that. You're just like, man, I just went through this whole thing, this whole ordeal. And then you, your friends is like, were you high? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God. But that's just life in general. Yeah. And, and the, you yeah. put a lot of, you put a lot of work into something and then mm. someone can be completely glib or just make, yeah. you know, say three comments about it and cut the whole thing and down. So, and so your voice, you know, it went out na national, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's so huge. I mean, congratulations. And then, and then did you oh, right. stay beyond? Oh, then it gets, oh, this, this gets better. Let's go. And, and I want to say, you know, that was cool for me at the time, but my job was to do that. Like I, you know, for years and years, I was on the radio all over the country, like every day, nobody cared, nobody paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my voice was generally heard from, I don't know, anywhere between 8 and 11 million people a day because I was this entertainment reporter and movie critic oh, who did these 35-second uh, reports mm -hmm. that showed up, you know, on on your local newscasts or on network newscasts, you know, pretty much five to six days mm. a week, which, uh, you know, I, I, I can only really appreciate that now. But uh, uh, as far as the rest of the night was concerned, so this became the first time in my life that I stayed up for more than 24 hours in a row. And I'm not really sure. Yeah, well, you know, I guess cramming for exams in college, I probably came pretty close. But I think, you know, we probably got up at eight o'clock that morning. And that was because it was so hot in the barracks, you know, you just, you couldn't at a certain point, it was just unbearable and you weren't, you know, you just weren't able to sleep. So I think we, you know, got up, took freezing cold showers, <laughs> then, you, then did our thing. And that started at eight o'clock. And I don't think that I shut my eyes and went to sleep until about 7 p.m. the next day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that was when the do you that, stop? That was, you don't stop till you leave, I'd imagine. No, no. And, and, you know, a lot of that was the tutelage of Al, <laughs> mm. I guess. Yeah. Is tutelage a word? I don't even know. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Al, Al was like, you know, this is, this is what we have to do. We have to stay up. And it wasn't even Al. Like, we were getting our boss was already on, you know, on the phone with us and telling us, you know, giving us marching orders because, you know, by, I think, 11, by 11 p.m., it was already a pretty big news story uh, right. around the country. And so... That was our, our missive. You know, we, we stay there, we keep reporting, we keep filing all night long. Uh, and then we have to be up for all the morning shows. And uh, both Al and I, you know, we were talking to radio stations all over the country. And, and you know, in the, in the documentary, like in the, in the first three minutes in that opening set piece, I think I, I pretty much opened the documentary, right? And then- Yeah, you're pretty early you, on in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you see that, old footage of me and i'm pretty sure when that was recorded or when that was filmed and by the way i didn't remember doing that either mm. <laughs> that was probably i'd like eight or nine o'clock in the morning and so i'd been up for 24 or 25 hours at that point damn damn so did you i mean were you obviously you're reporting were you going back out into the the field the festival in these yeah, late hours yeah yeah we we went back out there uh, we spoke to some people mm -hmm. we uh, i described what i saw 
and you know and that was pretty much it you know we were also we had to be there for the press conference in the morning as well right and we the, reported the, back on an, that. Un, an unplanned press conference but obviously one that had to happen um and what and i mean that the woodstock documentary had footage of that which just looked even more intense than the one before it oh I mean, yeah what was, it was, the, what it was, was that like <laughs> Yeah, I mean that because then at that point, I shouldn't be laughing, but I mean, it was it it was a really unfortunate situation for everybody who was on that stage. You're like, at this point, no one wants to be here, but some shit just went down, so we got to do this. And what was also pretty interesting is that I would say more than half the press corps left, they have more than half of them left before the shit went down, you know, because they they were done. You know, they got their new story. Uh, you know, if anything, they, they probably there were a few camera crews that were there. It was, you know, probably like the Associated Press or whatever their their video source was uh, that feeds out all the affiliates. So, you know, news stations around the country, if they were going to report on Woodstock '99, um, which you know they probably would, because it's a good like end of newscast type thing. Mm-hmm. If things didn't go south, that you know the the news crews knew that you know, back at the, at the station, wherever that was, they could pull that video and stick it in newscast. So there was no reason for them to stay anymore. Hmm. Right. Right. And because, you know, yeah, usually when a festival ends, uh, there's not fire and riots and destruction and, uh, state troopers. So and felled, uh, felled audio towers, felled audio delay towers. Yeah. So, damn man that's and also just like i don't know i as a for for doing this podcast someone who made it all the way to to monday i mean that in itself maybe not a a club you're necessarily wanting to be proud of but that's a club within woodstock 99 attendees that you you were there all the way it was it, it was a valuable experience for me in so many different ways and and it really did inform the way i covered news stories for the next 18 years (laughs) it it really did i mean i was an entertainment news reporter but you know sometimes you know when you're in new york and there are a bunch of stories going on the general you know news reporters aren't around so if there's something tragic going on now i gotta go (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so there there was a pipe explosion near grand central station uh in new york uh this was not long after 9 11. Hmm. i went there you know and, and and i ran i got to as close stupidly without a hazmat suit <laughs> or anything else i got as close to that uh pipe explosion as as i possibly could and you know that was something that i learned from woodstock 99 you know to just to get as close as possible to get you know the mm-hmm. best story that you know to find the best way to tell that story um there was a building explosion also that i got really close to i think it it made me almost want to be close like feel like i was obligated to be close Mm. to whatever the source of the story was and maybe the best example which Mm. is uh also ridiculous but you know you know suge knight yep all right. I don't know if you remember. I think it was in 2005. Suge Knight was shot uh, the night before the MTV Video Music Awards uh, in Miami. I don't mm-hmm. know if you recall this, but it happened. Mm-hmm. And 
it happened at a party that Kanye West was throwing. And a friend of mine was producing this party. So I went with uh, the, the person who wound up being my boss for years, and she covered the red carpet, and I waited with her. And then after she was done, we were going to go go into the party and it was at one of those fancy south beach hotels i have no idea what they're called and nor do i remember but there was a theme for the party because it was kanye west and mm. the theme was angels so kanye west hires all of these models beautiful models and has them wear uh, he has them wearing these one piece white bathing suits with mm. angel wings mm. so mm. they're all walking around and, and they're all in the party area so the party was in the pool area of this hotel mm -hmm. and so after we're done with the red carpet we walk down this hallway and the door to the pool area is at the end of the hallway and we have to wait in line and there are probably maybe like 10 or 11 people in front of us and you hear a few popping noises and then the door bursts open and like Valkyries, you know, screaming out of the door come all of these beautiful women in one piece white bikinis with angel wings. It was a very interesting aesthetic. And then people start screaming, Suge Knight was shot. Suge Knight was shot. Run. So, so we automatically were like, all right, we're running. We're out of here. Um, there's an active shooter somewhere. And then, but while we're running, I, you know, I actually think a little bit about Woodstock 99 because that informs everything. And I tell the person I'm with, her name was Andrea. Like, I stopped. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you got to go. I got to go back. She's like, what? I'm like, <laughs> I'm a reporter. This is a, news this is a news story. I'm going back. So I ran into the pool area <laughs> where there could have been an active shooter. I didn't care. And um, I snuck around. And then I, the, the paramedics came in. I remember I was standing sort of behind i don't know this a pole and so nobody like nobody bothered me i didn't see a shooter i didn't see anybody else so the paramedics came in somebody popped out of a room brought them in and there was a window to the room <laughs> and i there were blinds and i could see through the blinds and then i could see suge knight and i could see them trying to treat him i could see i watched suge knight shove a paramedic off of him like hard if you know anything about Suge Knight that makes sense mm. and you know so I called up the news desk and I reported everything that I was seeing but no other reporter was in there and I think you could probably find you might be able to even find a report I know like as soon as I got out I spoke to the New York Post about it and I think they quoted me Damn. Um, also like it was a, it was a news story and that was all over you know that wound up all over the place but that was something I probably would not have done Mm -hmm. if it wasn't for woodstock 99 was it smart you know probably not <laughs> man yeah. we we didn't know where the guy was who shot your night and he could have still uh have been there but i mean and, and i probably have a hundred stories that are kind of similar to that uh where i i went into situations and went into news stories and you know figured out a way to get close to whatever the source was and that was all from woodstock 99 man wow this is incredible uh david yeah this is this is so good i'm not I, agreeing that it's incredible i'm just responding I, to many i'm just saying i mean incredible in terms of just that story um man i f i feel like i could 
I feel like you got a lot of good stories and uh, we could, I do. We could keep this rolling. <laughs> I, th I think I'm going to make the call and wrap it um, here. I mean, wow, this is so amazing. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for telling, for telling your Woodstock story with us. Well, man, I just love that you guys do a podcast on Woodstock 99. Like I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't aware that there were podcasts about Woodstock 99. Um, and you know, Heather called my attention, uh, to your podcast and I listened to like I think five of them, including the one with Heather. I'm like, this is just great. I'm like, I, I, I wish I knew that this existed when it started. Yeah. It was just, I never, I never really thought to seek it out, you know? And I, yeah, just, I appreciate because, that. Yeah. And, and because of the, you know, this really unique experience that I had and Heather had and everybody else who's in that documentary, you know, it, it, it forced me to think about it a little more. And, um, also, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me that, that there's this whole community out there that is interested in Woodstock 99 and what happened. And I think, you know, clearly you guys have, are playing a big role in shepherding that feeling. There you have it, folks. That was David Blaustein part one. I really enjoyed talking to this guy. He had so much just very, very articulate insights into Woodstock 99. So seriously, cannot wait for part two because this is something we haven't done too much where we actually kind of bring in someone else to give their analysis, their opinions on Woodstock looking back at it. And also he's going to talk about his experience with the documentary itself. So really excited for part two. Thanks again so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us at Podcast 99 Official. And if you worked at, played at, or attended Woodstock 99 and have a story you would like to share with us, please send us an email at podcast99official at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and we'll see you at Woodstock.